Well, I'd like to welcome all of you here today as we are continuing our study through the book of Genesis in a series that we're calling Origins, and we are right now in the heart of the story of Abraham. And many people refer to him today as Father Abraham, and that's because God made a promise to Abraham all the way back in Genesis chapter 12 that all peoples on earth will be blessed through him. And we know that promise includes both Abraham and Sarah and his descendants who God said will be more numerous than the stars in the sky. You'll never be able to physically count them. And it would be through Abraham and Sarah that uh, their descendants who are known in the Bible as the Hebrews, also known as the Israelites and the Jews, it's all the same group of people, that it would be through these descendants that God would send the promised Messiah, Jesus Christ. Jesus would give his life for the sins of the world. And anybody who placed their faith in him can be saved. They will truly be blessed. The New Testament helps to clarify um, even further this promise that God gave to Abraham. Paul does that for us in Galatians chapter 3 and many other places too, but specifically in Galatians chapter 3 verse 7, Paul says this to the church, understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. Gentiles meaning all those who were not Jewish people. Just all those outside of God's chosen people that, that uh, this family that Abraham is going to have, these descendants, so all of them. So Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. This is what we're talking about, this, this promise that all peoples will be blessed through you. This is foundational to our understanding of what God is doing, why God is doing it, and how what God is doing here eternally impacts all of our lives, even to this very day. So we have together, these last few weeks have been started to unpack the details of, of, of Abraham's life and, and, uh, and, and all the comings and goings so we truly understand how it all fits together. You know, we saw just in last week's sermon that God told Abraham that he would be a father and, and Abram had a hard time believing this um, or accepting this because he's just too old. And he's like, Sarah's too old. How are we going to have kids? But, but we learned that in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, by the time we get there, that it just says, Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. It seemed unbelievable, but he just chose to believe. And that is why Abraham is remembered of, of a guy as having such great faith. But we also know from studying his life that he is not perfect. He's a great man of faith, but he's more like us than what we'd ever realize. Great man of faith, he did not always demonstrate it. He was a great man of faith, but he certainly was not perfect or free from sin. He was a great man of faith, no doubt about it. But man, he made some head-scratching decisions in his life. Things that he did that makes us today read it and go, what was that guy thinking? The very same thing is going to happen right here in Genesis chapter 16, the next part of his story. Um, if you haven't done so yet, please go ahead and open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 16. That's where we're going to be today. And while you're finding Genesis chapter 16, let me just take a moment to refresh your memory about something that happened a couple chapters back. 
Do you remember back in chapter 12 and chapter 13 when Abraham, out of fear because of a famine in the land, that uh, he fled to Egypt? And when he was going to Egypt, he was afraid that, that, uh, that they were going to really like his wife and they were going to kill him. So he comes up with this lie. He tells everybody, including Pharaoh, that his wife Sarah is actually his sister. Do you remember all those details that we studied about? When Pharaoh found out about this deception, he was angry and he kicked them all out of Egypt. And the Bible says that they left Egypt, they, he being Abraham and his nephew Lot and Sarah, they were able to leave with other people and they left with a lot of possessions and a lot of great wealth. And, and I don't know if you recall from that sermon, but I said that, uh, that there is going to be three really big consequences for their time in Egypt. You know, they made a misstep. They didn't trust God and they went to Egypt. There's going to be consequences from that. Do you remember what the first one was? Is that Abraham and Lot became so wealthy that when they got back home, the land that they had could no longer support both of them. They had possessions, they had people, they had animals, and the land just couldn't do it. So Abraham and Lot had to separate. That was going to be a significant consequence. The second one impacted Lot specifically because when Lot was in Egypt, he got a taste of what Egyptian life was like, and he never really let that go. There was a part of Egypt that was still in his heart, and he experienced some things that I don't think God really ever wanted him to experience. And when Abraham and Lot had to separate, Lot made his decision based on the land that reminded him of Egypt. And this is going to have devastating consequences in his life. It's going to help lead to his downfall and ruin of his family. But there was this third big consequence that you might remember from our sermon and from that part of the book of Genesis. And, 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 and that consequence is going to show up in a big time way here in Genesis chapter 16. Because it's in the 16th chapter of Genesis, Abraham and Sarah, they get impatient with God. And let me just say this, friends. Getting impatient with God is never a good thing. Can I get an amen? Amen. Sarah and Abraham, they want to have a child. God promised them that they would be blessed with a child. They're tired of waiting. They wanted God to fulfill his promise right then and now. They've been waiting a number of years and they're impatient and this impatience is going to create some, what I would just say, some very unnecessary havoc in their lives. This is going to lead them to tragically get the cart before the horse big time. This is where one of the consequences of their time in Egypt is going to come back and it is going to bite them. You see, there's this woman named Hagar. Um, she was from Egypt and she was with them. And she was a part of their lives, and she would have probably never been a part of their lives had they never gone to Egypt in the first place during the famine. And Hagar is about to become a big part of Abraham and Sarah's story. Look at Genesis chapter 16. Please look at verse 1. Here's what happens. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarah said. This is one of those places in the Bible that when you're reading it, you come to and you just have to stop and you have to go like, uh, what just happened? No, 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 wait a minute. 
What did I, what did I just read? And you reread it and you're like, hey, wait a minute. What are you doing? There's, there's something us today, as we read this, we want to go, hey, Abraham, Sarah, we know this isn't going to end well for you. What are you thinking right here? You know, especially in light of what we just learned last week, we would even say that even more. Just last week, we were studying Genesis chapter 15. And, and what did God say to Abraham in Genesis 15? He said, Abraham, do not be afraid. I am your shield. I am your great reward. And God told him all about the future and that nobody's going to be able to count his descendants. They're going to be that numerous. You're going to inherit all this land. It's going to be okay, Abraham. I am your shield. I am your great reward. Remember, that was just last chapter. So what in the world is going on with these two in the very next chapter? It's really quite simple and it's really quite sad too. And we've all been where they were at on some level. They get impatient. That's what it is. Abraham and Sarah, they still believe God, but they get impatient. They still believe that God is going to make a great nation out of Abraham's descendants, but they are tired of waiting for children. And they both know instinctively that they are not getting any younger. So what we're seeing happening right here in Genesis chapter 16 is that they are taking matters into their own hands because obviously God needed a little bit of help. Ever make that mistake? You ever try to insert yourself into God's narrative because God needs your help in figuring things out? Have you ever, have you ever tried something like that? Friends, I'm just going to tell you here today, and I think we all would instinctively know this and, and be able to agree with it, that it's never a good thing to get impatient with God. It's, it's even worse when you lose your patience and you start to take matters into your own hands. And that is exactly what is happening with Abraham and Sarah right here in chapter 16. We believe you, God, but we also think you need a little help with the timeline. So here's what they did. Look at verse 3. So Abraham had been living in Canaan 10 years. Sarah, his wife, took her Egyptian slave, Hagar, and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar, and she conceived. And it's right here in the Bible, at this moment in the story of Abraham, that it has this derailed feeling to it. It's like, the train is about to come right off the tracks and you can just feel that there's a pileup that's about to, to happen here. This is, a, this is a train wreck that is about to happen. You know, Sarah, she wants to be a mom. She wants to be a mom really bad. She wants to be a good wife and she wants to give Abraham an heir. And she wants this so bad that she is actually willing and she encourages her husband to take another wife so that he can try to have a child with her. Doesn't this sound more like a daytime talk show than it does the story of one of our great biblical heroes? You know, women in the ancient world, and we see this a lot in the Bible as well, they obtained honor through marriage and through having children. In, in, in many cultures in this world, that is still the same. And we see it all throughout history in ancient cultures. Women obtain honor through marriage and children. So with that, being a married woman back in Abraham's day, being a married woman uh, like Sarah who was unable to have any children was almost viewed like a curse. 
And, and the social implications, you know they had to have been huge. Because one of the understood roles of a married woman back then was to give your husband some children, give him a family so that his family line and family name can continue. It was viewed as a duty. And, and no doubt Sarah was feeling this. There's no doubt that Sarah, her whole life, was feeling the stares of people who saw her as somebody who was never able to have any children. She could hear the whispers behind her back. And I think it's completely within uh, the realm to say that Sarah probably at some moment, some really low moments in her life, blamed herself whenever she saw Abraham experience disappointment of not having children of his own. I'm sure there was some guilt there with all of that. And, and, and I have no doubt that some of those feelings played into her decision to persuade Abraham to take her maidservant that she got in Egypt, her name is Hagar, and to take her on as a wife. And she was a wife. Legally, she was a wife, but I think back then it would be more understood as more like a concubine situation. She was an extension of Sarah, and any children that would have been born to her would have been an extension of Sarah as well. And, and I'll tell you, this seems very twisted, doesn't it? I mean, I read this, and even as I'm, as I'm preaching this text, I'm, I'm sitting here thinking, this, is, this is, seems very twisted. But I'll tell you, it wasn't completely outside of what people back then did and how they viewed things. Abraham taking Hagar as a second wife it was legal to the cultural marriage code of their day. Now, for me, um, and this is just me, but I am comfortable in thinking, at least, that Sarah probably had good intentions when she came up with this plan. In fact, she may have even had the best of intentions when she came up with this. And I, I'm okay with thinking that Sarah probably thought that in all of this, she was doing a very good thing. And she could have easily reasoned to that point. She, she could have said things like, and of course, I don't know if she did. I'm just thinking. She could have said things like, you know, my husband's happiness is more important than my own feelings. I need to do this for him. She maybe could have reasoned towards that, culturally speaking, in that time, uh, uh, that time frame. Abraham could have reasoned it like this. You know, God never said that Sarah was going to have a child, only that I am going to have a child. He said that, that my descendants would be of my own flesh and blood, not Sarah's. And so Abraham could have gotten very technical and thought, you know what, maybe this is what God wants. Maybe this is how we can do it. We can, we can do it this way. You know, we're, we're not going to spend a whole lot of time with this, this today, but I can tell you that there is an undercurrent in all all of this that we're reading in Genesis 16, that still rings very true to us all the way to our day. And it's this, not everything that is legal is righteous. Okay. There's an undercurrent here that just screams this, not everything that is legal is righteous. And I just want us to have absolute clarity today as we study this, that God never puts his stamp of approval on what Abraham and Sarah are doing. In fact, God never puts his stamp of approval on polygamy ever in the Bible. And if you're paying close attention as you continue to read through chapter 16, God will never refer to Hagar as Abraham's wife. 
If you're paying attention, you'll see that she's labeled different ways. You know, like when an angel will come to visit her, and we'll read this in just a moment, this angel will not refer to her as Abraham's wife, but he refers to her as a slave. And this is a pretty good indication that God has, in a sense, rejected this union. That is not Abraham's wife. And for the other times that this kind of thing occurred with people in the Bible, um, just know this, that not once did God ever approve of it. More times than not, we read about how these multiple marriages created nothing but trouble for those who were in them. It's never viewed as God's best in any scenario, and it's just a powerful reminder to each and every single one of us today that not everything that is legal is righteous. I feel, as many of you do today, the same way about a number of things. Just because something is culturally accepted, just because something is legally available to us, does not make it righteous. And it's not hard to find examples today of things that are perfectly legal and culturally accepted, uh, things that are a part of our way of life that causes nothing but trouble for people today. And it opens the door for perpetuated wickedness before God. What's going on here in the opening verses of chapter 16 with Hagar will cause nothing but trouble for Abraham and Sarah. This is the kind of trouble that they got into. Look at verse four. When she knew that she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarah, I said to Abram, you are responsible for the wrong that I am suffering. I put my slave in your arms and now she knows she is pregnant. She despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your slave is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think is best. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar and she fled from her. So this is working out great. <laughs> no, no, it's not. Them getting impatient with God and taking matters into their own hands is having some significantly heavy consequences. And, and one of those consequences is this. Maybe you picked this up when we read the text. Sarah is now going to experience some um, incredible humiliation. I mean, that's what we read going on right here. This is one of the consequences of her getting impatient with God. Now she's humiliated even more. Once Hagar became pregnant, she started to see Sarah completely differently. And, and how could you not? Hagar was a maidservant. She was part of the family to serve Sarah, but now she is legally and relationally connected to Sarah's husband and carrying her husband's child. Her status has changed, and there's nothing they could do about it. Sarah knew for the first time that something about Hagar was completely different, and now for the first time in Hagar's life, she had something over Sarah, and evidently, Hagar knew how to express it in such a way that got under Sarah's skin. Sarah is experiencing incredible humiliation and she takes it out on Hagar and she severely mistreats her. And you're, you might say, hey, that's not right. Sarah shouldn't do that to Hagar. And friends, I want you to know, none of this is right, okay? None of this is normal. In six verses, 
Abraham's family has turned into an episode of the Jerry Springer show. That's what's happening here. Not only is Sarah experiencing some incredible humiliation and lashing out at Hagar, but now here's another consequence that we read. The harmony between Sarah and Abraham is now shattered. I mean, their marriage is having significant problems now, and she blames Abraham for all of her current troubles. And what's really odd is that even after they get impatient with God and they get impatient with timing, you know what Sarah does in our text? She invokes the Lord to take action. Can you believe this? So she gets in front of God. She does her own thing. They do it together. And now she wants the Lord to do something. And she said this, the Lord, may the Lord judge between you and me. This is how bad it got in their home. I think Abraham is at a complete loss. My impression of Abraham at this moment in the text, he's like, what do you want me to do? I mean, I mean what can we do? He doesn't seem to know. I mean, I mean, I think now as an outsider looking in all these years later, I, I read the text and I go, man, Abraham, this would have been a great time for you to stand up and own some mistakes, maybe build an altar, repent before God, forge ahead in a godly path, make something good out of this, out of these disastrous situations and create something good out of it. But that's not what happened. That's me looking into it all these years later saying, why did you do that? Abraham does the only thing that makes sense to him in the moment, which is this. He throws his hands up and he just lets the abuse in his own home continue unimpeded. It gets so bad. Sarah's mistreatment of Hagar, it gets so bad that, that, that Hagar runs away. Look at verse 7. She runs away. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Sir. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I am running away from my mistress, Sarai, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so that they will be too numerous to count. And the angel of the Lord said to her, you are now pregnant and you will give birth to a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he will live in hostility towards all his brothers. She gave this name to the Lord and who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. That is why the well where uh, the well was called Beir Lahor Roy and is still there between Kadesh and Berid. So Hagar bore Abram a son and Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son she had born. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. So where we catch up with Hagar, what she's doing, she is running away from Sarah but she quickly finds out that she cannot run away from God. An angel tracks her down by the spring that's along the road of Shur. And that's a very important detail that the Bible tells us because the, the, road, that's the, the road that he finds her on, it is the road that is heading towards Egypt. Hagar was from Egypt. Most likely she left Egypt with Abraham and Sarah when, when Pharaoh kicked them all out of his country. 
the road to shore, what it's telling us is that this is Hagar saying, I'm out of here. I am going home. And that's where the angel caught up with her. And after a short conversation, the angel instructed her to do two things. Do you remember what the text says? Go back and submit. And friends, that could not be easy instruction. Go back and submit. You know, if you've ever been on the receiving end of someone's mistreatment, then the idea, the very concept of going back and submitting to that person that hurt you sounds like crazy talk. But that's exactly what God wanted her to do. And she did. And I I try to really climb inside the text and understand things. And I try to ask questions of the text. And one of the questions that I ask at this point is, why does she obey the angel? Why? We have no knowledge of Hagar being a believer. We don't see her worshiping God. She doesn't seem to be somebody, at least not indicated in Scripture, that, that shares any aspect of Abraham's faith at all. So why did she choose to obey? I think she chose to obey because simply this, God was paying attention to her. The angel said, God has heard your misery. And friends, I hope you see the awesomeness of this moment. Why did she obey? Because God was paying attention to her. I just feel strong about encouraging you today to allow this single verse be an encouragement to you today. Hagar was literally out in the desert alone, pregnant, tired, thirsty, emotionally spent as a second-class wife to a husband who didn't stand up for her or protect her, and God knew all about it. And she learns that God has never taken his eyes off of her, and he went out and met her where she was at. And I promise you, if you are paying attention to Hagar, if you are paying attention to what's happening in this moment in her life, then you'll draw this conclusion that if God is paying attention to Hagar, then God is paying attention to me too. Some of you today may be feeling like you're, you're, you're in your own desert, so to speak. And uh, you can relate to Hagar a little bit. You're alone. You're tired. You're emotionally spent. You need to hear this today. God has not taken his eyes off of you. We are getting acquainted with Hagar at like her lowest moment in life. She does return to Sarah. And that fact alone tells me that there's more than meets the eye when it comes to Hagar's story. She does go back. She does do exactly what the angel tells her to do. She submits to her. Why? Because she believed what God told her. If you go back and look at chapter 16, verse 10, what was was communicated to her? The angel said, I will increase your descendants so much that they'll be too numerous to count. Does that sound just a little bit familiar? It should sound a little bit familiar because God promised Abraham 
that his descendants would be too numerous to count. And now he's also promising Hagar the same thing about numerous descendants. But make no mistake, I want to make this very clear. This is not the same blessing. This is not the same promise. See, the son that Hagar will have, his name is Ishmael, and he will indeed have descendants, but this is not part of the promise. It's not part of the covenant that God made with Abraham going back to Genesis chapter 12. But I do find that there is this interesting parallel between God and Hagar that sounds similar to God and Abraham. God made a promise to Abraham without have, that he's going to have descendants too many to count, and he believed it. And God makes a promise to Hagar that she will have descendants so great you won't be able to count them. And in that moment, she is like Abraham in that she believed. She had, in this, at least in this singular moment, she had the same kind of faith that Abraham did. She believed that what God said to her would come true. And how did she respond to God in all this? Look down at verse 13 again. You are the God who sees me. That's what she acknowledges. God, you see me. And then she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. I have no doubt that this is a turning point in Hagar's life. So after this encounter, as we've read, she does submit herself to Sarah. Obviously with that, we can assume there came an apology for being maybe arrogant when she found out she was pregnant, for despising Sarah, maybe holding it over her head and saying some things. She apologizes for running away. And it's, and it's at this point, I think, in Hagar's life, and I don't want to overstep the text, but I, I've got to believe that, that Hagar would have to learn to start trusting God to protect her and her son and to care for them in the years to come. And you know what? Perhaps there is a lesson in all of this for us as, as it relates to this part of the story. And maybe that lesson sounds something like this, that we never solve any of life's problems by running away. Hagar thought her only solution to solve anything was to run. And I think our instincts tell us and things we've been taught since we were children, but, but here maybe a biblical example of this reality. We never solve life's problems by running away. So, so what's our options rather? Our options rather is to submit to God first, trust him to work things out for your good and his good and for the overall glory of God. And, and, and maybe you need to hear that today. Maybe you're dealing with a particularly difficult person or maybe there's something that your, your inclination is to run. Maybe God doesn't want you to run at all, but rather to submit Submit first to God. Be humble in the situation. Let God do his thing. Well, both Abraham and Sarah, as we work our way through the text, they're going to have to learn to live with their mistakes. From continued reading on ahead of the story, some of you have, it seems like Abraham did enjoy watching Ishmael grow up. The Bible seems to indicate that Abraham did have concern and love for Ishmael. Um, um, it would be years later after Isaac was born. Now, Isaac was the son of the promise, Isaac. It would only be until after Isaac was born that Ishmael started to become a problem, which is exactly what the angel had foretold Hagar that he would be. 
So here you have Abraham and Sarah's impatience with God. They take matters in their own hands, which produced a son named Ishmael. And that son continues to create havoc and problems that have followed us all the way into our world today. Let me try to help you understand what I'm referring to there. Abraham, ultimately, in summary, will have two sons. We learn that the first one comes about right here in chapter 16, and that son's name is Ishmael. He was the product of Abraham and Sarah not waiting on God's promise to be fulfilled, and they take matters into their own hands, and that's the role that Hagar plays. Now, years later, 13, 14 years later, Abraham will have a second son. And this son's name will be Isaac. Only this time, Isaac is the son that God promised. This is the son promised all the way back in Genesis chapter 12. Isaac and Ishmael are brothers. And what does the Bible say about Ishmael? What did the angel tell Ishmael's mom? Look at verse 12. He will be a wild donkey of a man. Now, what a description. Oh, I mean, I think our, our minds can, can really race on that one. But this is what the angel says. He is a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he will live in hostility towards his brothers. What a prediction of the future. So you have Ishmael, who is from Hagar, and he is going to have a brother named Isaac, who is the promised child to Abraham and Sarah. Now, fast forward through history. What came of these two boys? Well, Ishmael will become the father of the Arab nation. Abraham and Isaac become the father of the Jewish nation and the Christian nation as well. And now here we are some 4,000 years later. You open up the news and, and you see this conflict. You see this tension between Iran and Israel. What are we seeing with this Middle Eastern conflict? We're seeing Ishmael and Isaac not getting along just like the angel foretold. The Muslim nation today will trace themselves to Ishmael and the Jewish nation traces themselves to Isaac and you have this conflict and it all started right here in Genesis chapter 16 with Abraham and Sarah being impatient with God. This season uh, in Abraham's life serves as a powerful reminder of the absolute necessity of waiting on the Lord, of waiting for his will, waiting for his timing. Abraham is an example of what kinds of things can happen, what kinds of disastrous things can happen when we take things into our own hands and we get impatient with God. And I'll be honest with you, waiting, period, is one of the hardest things that we'll ever do in life. Because in the moment of our waiting, whatever we seem to be, whatever we seem to be waiting on feels so far away. And whatever it is that we're waiting on and fixated on seems to never get here fast enough. And I would imagine that even as we are going through Genesis 16, maybe even for some of us, there are examples that, that God has kind of brought up in our mind or we've thought about from our past where we could say, boy, I sure didn't wait on God there. I sure got impatient with God. Boy, what if I had just waited on God? Anything like that come to your mind? Something like that comes to my mind. I, I learned this lesson um, in a very powerful, upfront way, 
a little over a decade ago, um, I was experiencing, oh, 10, 11 years ago, one of the most frustrating years of my life. Um, nothing seemed to be going the way that I wanted it to go, and I seemed to be having issues everywhere I looked. Have you ever experienced a, a season like that? I mean, even in the moment, you could tell, this ain't going right. I was having one of those. I prayed that God would step in and fix it. I, I prayed often, God, I need you to do something here. I, I need you to change the circumstances. And, and namely, what I was praying about was, God, I need you to change my circumstances. I am so done. I am ready to move on to the next thing. God, I need you to make something happen here. And without going into a lot of the detail, because they really aren't relevant to what I'm trying to share with you, I was ready. I was at a point in my life where I was ready to take matters into my own hands and start making some things happen. I was frustrated. It was by far um, one of the most frustrating seasons of my life up to that point in my life. I felt like I knew what was best and I felt like I knew what needed to happen and I was ready to push on. And if I'm just being honest with you, I was pushing harder than I was waiting on God. Of course, in the moment when all this is going down, I could hardly articulate it like I can today. Um, I remember one particular day during this frustrated season of my life, I was at my computer and I was working, I was trying to make some things happen. And, and even now I feel like how forced I was at feeling that I was trying to make something happen. I mean, you're kind of like trying to move a boulder that you're not strong enough to move. That's kind of how I felt. But I'm like, I'm going to move it anyway. And I'm sitting at my computer working on some stuff, and I get an email from a good friend of mine, a dear friend that I've known since childhood, who knew what I was going through at the time. And he just sent me an email saying, how's it going? You hanging in there? One of those kind of emails. And man, I was like, let me tell you how it's going. Buckle up. And I started to write him a book of everything that I was feeling. And as I'm writing, it was filled with things like, I'm doing this, and this is going to happen. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get a hold of this guy, and, and this and that. And it was all about what I was, was doing. And I had the, the radio on in the background, and there was a very popular song um, that was played on the radio all the time back then. And it, the, the simple chorus goes just like this. And no doubt many of you remember this song from these years ago. It just goes, strength will rise as we wait upon the Lord, as we wait upon the Lord, as we wait upon on the Lord. Remember that one? Strength will rise as we wait upon the Lord, as we wait upon the Lord. It just keeps repeating itself. And as I'm writing this very aggressive email about what I'm doing, I hear this in the back of my mind. I hear it on the radio and I start to stop typing. And I was like, whoa. And I was conscientious enough in that moment to, to recognize there's a conflict here. This song is sending me a message and this is not my spirit. After a minute or two, I, I deleted the whole email and I simply replied, I'd, I'm figuring stuff out, send. <laughs> that's all it was. And I thought, man, that, that's kind of weird. But that song is strange. It stopped me in my tracks like, hold your horses, Joe. About an hour later, my phone rings and it was my dad. And my dad, we, we just chit-chatted for a minute. And he said, well, Joe, just the reason I'm calling you is because this morning I was studying from the book of Nehemiah, and I just got this overwhelming sense in my spirit that I'm supposed to call you today and just going to, I feel like God wants me to tell you something. I think God wants me to tell you to wait. What does that mean to you? And I'm like, whoa. 
I'm like, really, Dad? Yeah, yeah, I just, I feel that very strongly in my spirit that God wanted me to call you and tell you to wait. Man, that stopped me in my tracks like you would not believe. Hung up the phone with my dad. I'm like, I can't believe that. Wow, that, this kind of stuff doesn't happen every day. But as we often do, we like to dismiss things as just pure coincidence. Well, just coincidence, that's a popular song. It plays all the time. And my dad studies the Bible all the time. He could probably have a message for me every day. That night, I was putting my very young son, Neil, at the time, to bed. And we had a routine back then that uh, we would read a Bible story. And, and uh, we had this action Bible, which is about that thick. And there's hundreds of Bible stories, and it's all in comic book form. My boys loved it. We've read through it many times. And when he was just a little old guy, I said, all right, Neil, it's bedtime. Go grab the action Bible. You pick today what story you want to read. And he comes and plops in my lap. He opens. Now, there's hundreds of different stories. He opens up and he said, Dad, let's read this one. And I looked down and wouldn't you know it, it was the story of Nehemiah. And I knew right then, I knew, Joe, you got to wait. Joe, you got to wait. You are getting ahead of God and, and you have to wait. And so I talked to Kirsten that night. I said, you're not going to believe what's been happening to me today. And, and we just stopped and we prayed and we said, okay, God, we'll wait. I'll stop trying to push. I'll stop trying to make things happen in my own time. And I'll just wait on you, whatever that looks like. I'll just wait. And I'll tell you, I am so glad that I did. Because what I didn't know is that God was working on things that were outside of my peripheral. There were things that he was orchestrating in my life and things that he was bringing about and things that he was doing in our church that I had no idea. And had I not waited, I'm telling you right now, had I not waited on God in that season and I would have gone on to do something else that I forced, I would have missed out on the best two years of my 11-year ministry in Kansas City. And we would have missed out on some of the deepest relationships with friends that we've ever known. If I had, been continued, if I had continued to be impatient with God, not only would I have missed out on those things, but I am almost 100% confident that I would have never ended up here in Bella Vista which has turned out to be the biggest ministry blessing of my life. So whatever you're going through, let Genesis 16 be a refreshing chapter. Let it be a, a chapter of the Bible that serves as this great reminder that it's always better to wait on the Lord. God knows what he is doing. May we be like Hagar in this moment who said, you are the God who sees me. And as your pastor, I feel like God wants me to tell you, and I think many of you need to hear this. I think you need to wait on the Lord. His ways are perfect. He's doing things you cannot see. You need to wait on the Lord. Dear gracious God, I just thank you for your word today. And I thank you for what it teaches us. And I thank you for how it inspires us. And Lord, as, 
as I just read through this story today and know that there's so many things that went so terribly wrong. But Lord, may this example serve as a teaching moment for us that where maybe Abraham and Sarah were impatient, let it inspire us to be patient. And Lord, I just believe that there are things happening in our church family right now that many of us are probably thinking, I'm going to make things happen. I'm going to, I'm going to just forge ahead and, and, it's, and I'm going to make it happen. I'm going to will it to happen. And what we may not realize is we are forcing ourselves into something that would bring displeasure to you. Lord, help us to take a step back. Lord, help us to do what Abraham and Sarah failed to do. Help us to take a step back and wait. Wait for you to do what only you can do. Lord, we thank you. Lord, we thank you that in your perfect timing, you waited just long enough to send your Messiah. And at just the right time, Jesus came. And at just the right time, he went to the cross. And at just the right time, he was raised to life. And at just the right time, you will return again. Lord, I pray that you help us do well as we wait. In Jesus' name, amen.